Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 137. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. This week on the show, I have Dr. Patty Limerick. Dr. Patty Limerick is the faculty director and chair of the board of the Center for the American West at CU Boulder, where she's also a professor of history. Now, I know Patty Limerick, and it's funny, at the end of this episode, I refer to her as Dr. Limerick. It's the first time I do it. But she says, oh, please, just call me Patty. And one thing that's funny is she's like, the people who insist that you call them doctor might be suffering from a little bit of insecurity. I'm Dr. Limerick. I need to be reminded constantly that I have this title. She said, please just call me Patty. And that gives you immediately a great sense for what Patty is like. Now, I've known Patty through my time working in oil and gas. And I note in this episode that she has somehow managed to maintain credibility in both those who oppose fossil fuel extraction as well as those in industry. Now, how does she do that? And I think what's instructive here is when you look at her bio page on the Center for the American West, and it's this last line of her bio that says it all to me. In an era of political polarization and contention, the center strives to bring out, quote, the better angels of our nature, end quote, by appealing to our common loyalties and hopes as Westerners. So Patty's looking to find common ground. How does she do that? Well, that's what we get into in this week's episode. She also happens to be the Colorado State Historian. Now, she was brought to me on this episode by my dad. My dad ran into Patty in the airport, started talking to her, mentioned my show, mentioned the work I was doing, and she agreed to come on and talk about it. And in the words of my dad, she's a genius. And I think in this conversation, it's hard not to get sucked in by Patty. I could listen to her talk all day. And that's a good thing because she gives lots and lots of speeches. She's all over the place talking about any range of issues. We talk in this week's episode about monument designation, particularly the Bears Ears Monument in Utah, which could be a monument that in the first time of history was designated a monument that designation could be taken away. We talk about oil and gas issues. We talk about how she didn't always have this sort of, call it invitational style, where she tries to bring as many people to the table, uh, listening, asking more questions than providing more statements. She's a remarkable person. She's a brilliant scholar. And this is a terrific episode. I cannot say enough nice things about it, about her, about the work that she's doing, and it was a real privilege to get to take an hour of her time and sit down with her and talk about so many different issues. So that's coming up. First of all, just like to give a word to our sponsor, Four Degrees, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They've been with us since episode one. This is episode 137 of the show. And the reason I'm so proud to feature them is not only the support that they give me on the back end. They provide my hosting, they provide tech support, they make sure everything is optimized in terms of the John of All Trades listening experience, but because of the work that they do. If you were doing anything online, whether you're building a website, whether you're doing some social media marketing, whether you need to buy some advertising, no matter what it is, 
Four Degrees has you covered, and they provide solutions that work for you, getting your message in front of the audiences that most need to see that message better than anyone else and doing it for a cost that you can afford. So please check them out on the web, the number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. John of All Trades, proud to have them as our sponsor and look forward to many, many more episodes together. We are on Apple Podcasts, so go to Apple Podcasts, search John of All Trades, hit subscribe. All new episodes will come directly to your listening device. You don't even have to do any work. Give us a rating. Give us a review. That helps us get more exposure for the show. Additionally, we are on Stitcher. You can stream us live there. There's thousands of listening options. We hope you choose this show if you're on Stitcher. So Stitcher.com, search John of All Trades. You can find us there as well. Now, episode 137 features Dr. Patty Limerick. She is the faculty director and chair of the board of the Center for the American West at CU Boulder. She's also a history professor and the Colorado State historian. A lot going on in this episode. You are going to love it. Episode 137 with Dr. Patty Limerick starts right now. Right now, if I were doing what I think I intend to do, I would be writing a piece about Mormon understandings of the physical environment, natural environment, which hmm. is a lot more striking than most people, including I think most Mormons would realize that the um, leaders, the founders of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, were really different from other white Americans of their time in saying that uh, the God was the creator of the physical world and human beings could not own land or resources, but were stewards of it. Um, and they were to certainly to live on it and put it to use and so on, but they were to recognize that they were just like, stewards. Like caretakers. Caretakers, right. Um, that, that almost seems more in line with sort of traditional, like Native American philosophy. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it's, there are many groups of people who have lived on the planet who have thought, we're just passing through and others will mm -hmm. follow us and we will have to be attentive to that. Hmm. And then there are other groups that are sort of, here we are, let's just <laughs> go at it. Um, and so, this is ours. Yeah. And <clears throat> we'll just, we're the ones and there may be a future after this moment, but that's not really our, on our minds right now. So uh, some really good historians have said that the Mormons were very distinctive in Utah's really the only white settler group that had this idea so far ahead of the environmental movement. I mean, oh. it's not the environmental movement. It's a relationship to uh, the creator. Yeah. And which is not excluded from the environmental movement, but it's really its own time. Now, I don't know that it's particularly familiar concept right now mm. for, for many uh, Mormon people. I don't think that some senators and congressmen from Utah who are Mormon are, are aware right. of, of this. So th I'm, why am I taking this up? Okay, so my mother and father were from Brigham City, Utah, and Salt Lake City, so I have some investment in that whole thing. I'm not Mormon myself, but I certainly find that crucial to Western history to pay attention oh, to absolutely. Mormons in Utah. And the current struggle over the new monument in hmm. uh, Utah, the Bears Ears monument that right. President Obama approved that may get, well, is under consideration for the first time ever that a presidentially designated monument would be uh, would lose that status. Uh, right. I, I got to speak in Utah last fall. I got to write an essay for a collection of photographs of the Bears Ears Monument. And I would like to go forward with this uh, idea. Now, you can't, you must be very careful how you do this because we're going backstage a little bit, but it's pretty obvious that if I, as a child of a lapsed Mormon, say, 
well, you people have forgotten your heritage. I don't <laughs> think that's exactly what should have happened here. So I'm not going to do that. That was a parody. That was not me. But some way of right. saying, what a great tradition. What what an interesting new angle for you to consider. An old angle to, for you to consider yeah, in some ways. That so, is now new again. Yeah, a refreshed angle. Maybe. A refreshed angle. Yeah. I like that. Because I am not um, in any part of my mind or soul anti-Mormon, um, and I'm I'm proud to have that right. that connection. And I don't think, from what I believe I understand about history, there is no reason for the Indian people who support the Bears Ears Monument to be in an oppositional relationship to some mainstream Mormon people, because right. as as you yourself said, there, there's more to say. Well, now that's curious. We ended up with kind yeah. of similar stances in our in the traditions we inherit. Yeah, no, and uh, the concept is fascinating to me. By the way, before we get too far along here, this is Patty Limerick. You are the faculty director and chair uh, chair of the board of the Center for the American West at University of Colorado. We are here adjacent to your office. And uh, I know you got plenty going on because when I reached out to you, you said, I am involved in too much. Uh, yes. Have you managed to dial that back a little bit? Well, uh, something went, I wouldn't say awry, but something went into uh, escalation mode in March and April of this year. Mm. And that's really good news because, and why is it really good news? Mm. Because in some ways it was not really good news because I was in a frenzy and I was late and I was running here and I'd come back from one trip and have to prepare the next talk and, right. and barely catch up. Well, I wouldn't catch up anyway at all. So, <laughs> so that wasn't. You never fully dig out, right? I don't know what the, I, where, where the term catch up ever come from. I don't know where, where it came from. <laughs> Doesn't so, apply to you. I don't recall ever having done that. So, I mean, really probably since I started graduate school. Well, okay. So As far. someone who was, who was once in graduate school, uh, I know the concept. Yeah. You, you never fully feel like no. I, no, I will say, after I defended my thesis mm -hmm. and I, I was teaching one class at the time and then I had one last paper to write, I thought, and I was, I was suddenly lacking in things to do. I go, what happened? Right. And the inertia right. nearly killed me. Right. It's like running on a treadmill or something and yeah. then, and getting faster and then suddenly somebody stops the treadmill and you think, and you're well, just what am I going to do? <laughs> you're gonna just standing there. around. Yeah. And it's just, and there's a sudden, uh, well, so fortunately, the treadmill never stops for me, right. but it does change pacing. The good news, you may recall, I said that it was good news that I was scheduled into a frenzy. The demand for historical perspective out in the world is huge. Mm. And I think you could say the demand for historical perspective is insatiable. While that is true, another thing is true, that the number of history majors and the number of people and uh, kids enrolled in history classes, that is plummeting. Really? And many good-hearted elders to students who might be majoring in history, the aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents say, don't major in history. You'll never get a job. <laughs> there's not, there's no demand for that. Would you like fries with that? Quite. Yeah, uh. right. Barista. On your way. Barista. Uh, and until driverless cars take it over, maybe cab driver. So, right. So I as just, As a speech communication major uh, in the, in the hmm. liberal arts college. I mean, I, I heard a very similar thing. You, what are you going to do with that? And I said, almost anything. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, as if, as if communication were a peripheral. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll just do stuff. We'll make stuff. Well, to whom will we sell the stuff? How will we right. get people to use it? I mean, it's so ridiculous to, to miss that. Uh, but I would say that just as compellingly to go into the world without a sense of history is like a individual human being going into the world with amnesia. Right. It's incredibly dangerous. And if you have to think, Hmm, there's a light 
I have some vague memory that that light, a red light, is supposed to mean something. But with amnesia, I really can't recall. I guess I'll cross the street. And, <laughs> so that's just, it's really good that we remember what a red light means. Right. And, we, and it's even better that we remember what a green light means. So uh, to just have to invent who you are as a society and as a community every minute, that's as dangerous for a nation mm. as it is for an individual to, right. have to be saying all the time. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. I'll just go across the street here. So, so I am astounded that there could be such a disparity between our busy, overcommitted lives at the Center of the American West responding to these. Mm-hmm. Um, and the requests are irresistible much of the time, which is how I got into it. In, in what problem. way? Well, everything involves a story. So, sure. uh, in January of 2016, in Harney County, Oregon, a group of outsiders who did not reside in that area came into that area and in an armed takeover uh, occupied uh-huh. the wildlife refuge, the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge there. Right. I remember that. Yes. And, it and got who a, doesn't at, at this point? That earned a lot of media coverage. A lot of media coverage. One thing not appearing in the media coverage, or at least I totally missed it and I was following it, was that in that very county, over the course of close to 20 years, People had been meeting who were not in initial agreement with each other. And a thing called the High Desert Partnership had a bunch of people, ranchers, federal employees, just meeting. And they had arrived at a consensus plan for the management of that wildlife refuge, 2013. Mm-hmm. So three years later, people – and it, and there's there has to be inherent comedy in this, uh, though it's a very painful story. But sure. some people show up, and they take over the wildlife refuge, and they didn't come from that county, and they're outsiders, and they say that they're there to speak for the locals. Yeah, they came from Nevada, didn't they? They came from uh, – their family uh, origins of, of, of the sort of leaders was from Nevada, although right. I think that the leader leader was from Arizona at that point and right. had a car lot or a uh, – Equipment maintenance. Anyway. Uh, so, something that's almost like a non sequitur, right? It, it's just, I would feel, I mean, we all blurt things and then think, why did I say that? But if I ever went to Harney County, Oregon, or, or to Powder River Basin, Wyoming, or anywhere, right. and got disordered in mind and thought I was there to speak for the locals, I, I would hope there'd be a bucket of cold water on hand <laughs> just to say, you can certainly speak, Patty. There's no reason why you can't be here speaking, but, you were not speaking for the locals, and that's just a silly idea. Where'd you get that? So these guys stuck to it. They thought they were speaking for the locals. That was really hard on that community, um, and they went into a pretty, well, just an impossible phase of mm-hmm. so much media coverage and FBI agents and difficult questions and armed individuals walking around the town. So for the better part of a year and a quarter, um, nothing happened in public meetings that wasn't contentious and bitter and divisive. Right. And so some friends who spend a good share of their time in that county are making a, a documentary and they invited me to be in the documentary. And then rather than coming to Boulder and interviewing me here, they agreed that it would make more sense for me to go there. And here's an exciting concept for an academic, actually visit there for a bit and yeah. know where I oh, was yeah. before I began holding forth on <laughs> sure. The history of uh, that had entrapped them in this confusing situation. So that's what I was doing. And to be invited to do that, to have read yeah, so oh, much sure. about that locale, to know I, I had followed the stories. I had missed the stuff about this incredibly heroic 
uh, collaboration that had preceded right. the trouble and for whatever reason just been obscured because I mean I guess it's hard to cover a news story ladies and gentlemen breaking mm-hmm. news there's some really nice people and they're meeting in Harney County and they're drinking coffee and they're kind of getting to know each other <laughs> more at 10 o'clock right. like, well that's not yeah you're yeah. you're not you're not going to sell ad space no. uh, with that no. as your lead story although it's a pretty good story and- well absolutely but uh, context is hard which yeah. I mean, we were talking before we, we started, before we turned on the mics, uh, about why this podcast is of value. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly that type of thing. I love getting, uh, getting the bigger story. I mean, what you see is a small piece of it. Right. Everything that goes underneath it, I mean, it's like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. To your point, I could see why that would be irresistible. Yes. Yes. And, and what on earth you could say if you were a smarter person in time management? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're just offering me, uh, four, Three and a half days of incredibly interesting opportunities to meet people that I've only read about from a distance. Oh, that's all you're offering. Oh, you're doing that. <laughs> and then you're giving me a chance to actually try an experiment of giving a public speech there on the history of federally managed lands, which wow. is the hottest subject that you could speak of there. So I get to give that speech and then I get to think about it afterwards. Uh, and, and then a whole weirdness occurred where I, because of a friend who was visiting for a talk he was giving here, I got to be in the New Yorker wow. with a little story about me giving my speech there, which was certainly not in any way the goal. Or, in fact, I wouldn't have done it if my friends hadn't said it was okay right. to go into such a public f- framework. So it's just such an honor to have such an opportunity and such a, it's a different form of gluttony, but I am a glutton for stories and anecdotes and experiences right. and who would have thought. And then I met so-and-so kinds of stories. So, uh, so that was, there was no turning that down. I also remain professionally active in the world of history. So I went to the American Society for Environmental History meeting, mm-hmm. uh, and I went to the Organization of American Historians conference, and that just was like, okay, I'm back from Harney County. Okay. I'm in a hotel in Chicago with a bunch of academic historians. Okay. I'm, so, but. So the hits just keep on coming. I mean, what, yeah. what you're describing to me is, Almost if, if you have a passion for history, what you're describing is like going down a buffet and, mm-hmm. and getting to sample all the mm-hmm. different favorite things that you right. get right one after another. Right. And yeah, speaking of gluttony, <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but when you read your background, which I'll, I'll put a link to your bio on the Center mm-hmm. for the American West, you know, in terms of uh, getting a degree from UC Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. right? And then going on to Yale, mm-hmm. teaching at Harvard, coming mm-hmm. to Colorado. You have done so much. And then the way I know you is through engagement through oil and gas issues. Right. What was remarkable to me was in all the time that I've known you, you've maintained credibility in the oil and gas community and in the environmental community. And that is one of the most interesting right. and toughest tricks that I think you can pull off. I wouldn't recommend it because I don't try it at home. Although if you tried it at home, at least you wouldn't be, no one would know you were trying it. So that would be good. But don't try it in public is kind of that. Unless you, unless you want to and you know you want to. I will say, I guess it is important to say that probably my credibility with the people who are entirely of the shut it down. Uh, right. Any. Act Keep it of, in the ground, that kind of thing. Right. Any act of tolerance towards people who develop the resource is an intolerable. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a comical thing, but mm-hmm. the tolerance would be intolerable on, on that. <laughs> but, but for some people, I mean, I, I guess I did get out of better understanding of how difficult it is for parents of young children who live near what becomes a, a fracking well site and right. they just don't know. They just don't, they can't feel confident. They can't think. Right. 
and because and we don't need anyone to go to laboratories to investigate whether parents will try to protect children. <laughs> no, we certainly not. We got that. And and thank heavens we have that. So I do understand some a few groups that I thought, boy, these people are really a take no prisoners hardline group. But I I certainly for some people I get yeah I get it. Uh, I think for there is a sector that probably will always be. Oh, I guess at a minimum, uh, puzzled and confounded by right. why I would cross around the borders as sure. I do. And I attend, I attend events of all of those groups. I go to the, to fundraisers for conservation and environmental groups. Mm-hmm. I, uh, go to occasions with all industry people. I then go to a event with water managers who are concerned oh, sure. about what will happen to water resources and who are not anti-fracking activists, right, but certainly. who are just thinking, you know, this, uh, some of the confidentiality issues with, with what goes into, um, the industrial secrets of hydraulic fracturing, a water manager can be very, uh, understandably alarmed. What if something happens and we don't even know right. what's in, in the, in the water. So that's not somebody who has staked an identity of being pro or anti, but it's just thinking I'm a water manager. And no, they, if- they do have skin in the game though. Yeah. To your point. Yeah. And what's, what's so remarkable to me is I spent a lot of time talking to, in my previous role, talking to people who were fearful or skeptical Mm -hmm. or unnerved by any number of aspects of this industrial process. Mm -hmm. And what I always told people who worked in industry, when you talk to people, approach them and understand that they've heard what they've heard. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not your job to assign value to what they've heard. Mm -hmm. Just because they've heard things that might be untrue, people can be wrong. Mm-hmm. People are entitled to be wrong. That's fine. That's right. that's part of human nature. We're we're all wrong about some things, but it doesn't mean that they're crazy. Mm-hmm. And that to me is an important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Just because they've heard something that might be factually or technically incorrect, doesn't mean that their fear isn't mm-hmm. real. And so it's your job to provide, fill in the mm-hmm. context for them, give them uh, an additional sort of slant on the material. They'll make up the mind for the, their mind for themselves. And to me, that's an important distinction in terms of finessing the approach. And it sounds like what you're describing. As, as long as we go into any discussion of public controversy, uh, with a degree of empathy, with, mm-hmm. with a degree, with, you know, asking more questions than giving yeah, more statements. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would say historically, industry has a very hard time with that. Many people have a hard time with that. Right. It would and that's be, me editorializing, obviously. But, but well, yeah. If it would be a delight if one occupation had monopolized <laughs> the unwillingness to hear criticism in an open <laughs> manner. That would be, I, I would, I would contribute to that group. I would say, oh, this is really interesting that one sector of humanity refuses to hear criticism and opposing views in a uh, tolerant and open minded way. That's that group. We love them because they just do it, and the rest of us are set free from that unhappy habit. <laughs> but oh, lordy, oh my goodness, um, yeah. very common. You said you you wouldn't recommend trying to <laughs> walk that path. Why is that? I I would certainly love to have. I, I guess I would say I would no more recommend that you try to walk on a tightrope or uh, mm. than without training, without sure, without yeah, right. some, I mean, and and also start rather close to the ground. Start maybe an inch and a half off the ground on your tightrope as you start practicing on <laughs> on that. And don't go to the high wire at, at first. So I think there are many things that people learn, as indeed I learned them, on how to conduct yourself when you're going to do something that mm-hmm. is precarious and 
by some measures unlikely to succeed, but you're going to try it anyway. So acquire some skills and take every episode of practicing those skills as instructive, which is a great attitude because instead of going home and going, oh boy, I totally messed that up. You think, wow, wow, what an opportunity I gave myself. Yeah. I totally learned something on that one. Uh, don't do X or Y. Don't do X or Y right. is a fine way to learn. I had a, a friend in graduate school once. We had quite an ineffective teacher, which I guess we had several of those, but had effective ones as well. It happens. But, but after one class, this man next to me, a uh, graduate student, said, as soon as I get tenure somewhere, I'm going to write this professor a thank you note. I said, hmm. you are? And he said, well, yes. And it's going to say, dear professor so-and-so, I'm very grateful to you, and I'm now taking this opportunity to express my gratitude because from you, I learned everything I needed to learn about teaching. I learned never to. And then there'd be a long list of this. <laughs> then so, it would just unfurl like a scroll yes, in a cartoon. Exactly. It would be quite a long letter. So, <laughs> so I feel that I offer myself some of, I, and one person can do something and then think, well, that wasn't right. And if that's all you're going to do, then don't try that again. But if you could rethink how that must have been to be on the receiving end of that and so, I mean, I, I would say a lot of it, I'm not overconfident, but a lot of it I might not have instantly got, but I had some recognition from day one that if, um, I mean, I'll just take some of the episodes that, that occurred when I had the governor here. The governor is seen as too supportive of- Is uh, this the current governor? Yeah. Uh, yes. John Hickenlooper was, is seen by many as being too supportive of oil and gas industry. Right. I had him, um, in a, in a big room and there were people, who were very opposed to him and making them feel shut down wasn't going to help the situation. I should say that was like one week after the, the Boston marathon bombing. Oh, so right. everybody's backpacks, the kids couldn't bring their backpacks yeah. in. And it was Ever, just a, it's, a, it's a very charged environment is what you're describing. Really charged. And, and just sad to be thinking of, boy, this is our governor has to come with all the security and ha- yeah. So anyway, so it's how do you handle that in a way and I certainly tried to um, say at the beginning that if anybody was, well, that I would take anybody to lunch who felt that they would have liked to have disrupted and protested in an mm-hmm. audible way. I didn't personally uh, want that. I wanted them to engage in what we call respiratory protests. So that at a Senate American West event, if you bitterly disagree with a speaker, you should express that. We encourage that. But you should uh, use respiratory protests because then your neighbors can still hear. You should gasp with exasperation and or with disbelief gasp with disbelief or mm. sigh with exasperation and <laughs> that sort of thing so <sighs> yeah exactly that's as close as you can go to vocalizing you can't go any further than that because then your neighbor can't hear right so so i did all that <laughs> and i'll take you to lunch if there's things that you think i i missed here please i'll i want to go out and chat with you about that so i don't know maybe the next day or something there was a letter to the editor that's from a woman who said uh Patty Limerick poses as taking a stance of neutrality. And oh. She actually conducted herself in a manner that was clearly uh, biased towards the governor's position. And so I thought, well, I didn't think I did, but at that time I thought of him as a friend. And so why wouldn't I have sure. conveyed some of that? So, but instead of sitting there thinking, well, you should not have written that in the paper about me because <laughs> right. that was not me as I understand me. So I just thought, well, okay. So I found her phone number, the writer of the letter, and I called and I left a message and, and she called back a little while later and she was, seemed to be kind of astounded. She just, like four times she said, you called and left me a message. Well, yes, I did. So I, you actually <laughs> I'll, just I'll bet she called was surprised. and left me. I said, yeah, well, you see, I'm trying, I'm trying to do this neutrality thing. And I don't know. I get there sometimes and other times I think, well, that wasn't perfectly 
played and what a miracle it would yeah. be. And so, so we actually, I, I consider her a friend and it turned out to be fine. Well, uh, good. Which couldn't, would not have happened if I had left a different kind of voicemail. <laughs> How dare you write that about me <laughs> in the newspaper? Right. Yeah, I'd like to just see you in person and tell you why that was wrong of you. To, so, <laughs> so it's not really rocket science to think that there's first that there's no guarantee that if you make a open and conciliatory gesture that that will be well received. You certainly can't sign a contract with the universe. So <laughs> I am going to be pleasant and I will get pleasantness in return. Please send me the countersigned version of this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, it's funny. I, I talked about finessing the approach and on, on this bio page again is the, the very last sentence is the one that spoke to me the greatest. <laughs> and it says in an era of political polarization and contention, the center strives to bring out, quote, the better angels of our nature, end quote, by appealing to our common loyalties and hopes as Westerners. Yeah. If you sort of present that up front, does that disarm some of the immediate hostility that might occur when engaging with issues such as oil and gas or water management or monument designation? Yeah. Uh, whatever the issues are, if you approach it from that sort of mm-hmm. viewpoint and if people, if you have credibility that you've mm-hmm. done that previously and you have an impressive body of work, does that help sort of get people there faster? I have tried it both ways. In my younger days, I'm going to use that insufferable phrase, when I was your age. <laughs> Sorry, that's just horrible. I, I hated that as a young person. But in truth, when I was sure your age, I was... Um, I mean, you're speaking from experience here. You're not trying to moralize with me. But... No, not in the least. I would moralize. I would never do that. So, right. well, that, that doesn't that... But, um, <laughs> but in this case, I certainly had a wonderful time uh, years ago in, in pushing the case for a, a revised understanding well, sorry, a refreshed understanding of Western American history, more realistic understanding of Western American history. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book called Legacy of Conquest, and it had a big impact. And really, somewhere, somewhere in is having that impact right now. It's just amazing. People keep reading it. 30 years, and people keep reading it. That's great. And I wanted to revive the field of Western American history. It seemed to be contracting. Um, the numbers of people attending the Western History Association mm-hmm. seemed to be shrinking. So I wanted uh, to change that. And... Many other people participated. The book is full of a, it's a synthesis of the work of many other historians. So it's not, oh, look what I did, but I did bring it together. And so in those days, I was, um, I was having a good time. And part of my good time was speaking with excessive force every now and then. Mm. Uh, I was also, I mean, I was unmanaging myself, I guess, in some ways, because I was attacked quite bitterly by some people. And that probably fueled some of the energy of my language. So if I look back, I can look back at like the New York, the Los Angeles Times or New York Times or something, and you'll see me in those things from 30 years ago saying the idiocy of this <laughs> assumption that others are making. And so I, oh, idiocy, good word, Patty, woohoo, that's really good, bring them around. But I loved it, and I had a really good time. And then I think after having a really good time, it just had to come into my mind, am I having the most effective time? Mm. And how fun to rally your fellow believers, how fun to have the preaching to the choir, and then the choir really belts it out after that. It's really fun. So, (laughs) uh, But I did have good reason, I think, to say this may not be how to make the most of your time on the planet. Yeah. And you know what? It is fun taking your flamethrower to things. I mean... It, th- that's undeniable. But the problem is afterward, at, at least in my experience, 
you're left with really nothing but regret. And, and right. I mean, I, well, I, and you're goofy. Another problem is you're goofy. Uh, so that right. once, which is not a good thing. Once years ago in a, in the early years of the center, American West, we had a um, meeting with a person who was not helping our cause mm-hmm. and who was really keep, it was kind of keeping the parking brake on our vehicle. And I was at, uh, this is years ago and I was uh, frustrated and I was annoyed and I did something I would, I can't imagine ever even having the impulse because what I did was there's three of us at a lunch. We're in a nice restaurant in Boulder. So frustrating. I can't bear it. And I, I was rightly frustrated. That's not. Are you just I, grinding your molars listening oh, to this? Oh, man. And, and it was uh, really vexing. So there's different things you can do about it. Well, what I did there was I thought, hmm. and I must have seen a bad movie or two where people did it. So I stood up in the restaurant and I took my napkin and I threw the napkin on the table. I said, I'm not going to take any more of this. And then I left the restaurant. Very dramatic exit. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then a complete, the goofy thing, I mean, that's where the, the total tidal wave of goofiness hits next because huff, 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 you <laughs> miff, 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 you go walking out. Stomping then, around. Yeah. Then you're on uh, the sidewalk and you're thinking, okay, what's your plan next? <laughs> what were you thinking would be the next thing to do? Would you uh, call a reporter? Or, I mean, what, no, you're not going to. What, what were you going to do? What, and what would that do? So, so I really didn't think this all the way through. You're right. I missed a part here. I apparently had a goal, but it's impossible now to figure out what that goal was. So I'm, in a weird way, really glad I did that. Yeah. Because um, it was, I mean, it was beautifully performed. I will tell you that, that my... Well, <laughs> full huff performance. Um, uh, drove off in a huff and, well, it didn't drive off. I was walking. So that's even stupider is that you can't <laughs> gun the engine. And so. Well, there's no door to slam either, no. which is re- immensely unsatisfying. No, many things went awry with that. Um, so that was a very fine way of saying, don't do that again. So what did you do uh, after that? Because obviously you're left there. What is this? Uh, is this a tough story? Uh, well, I just paid for it because I had discredited myself, right? And so the person who I was trying to work my way past or around was v- perfectly justified in saying, "See, she's very hard to work with." <laughs> oh no! Yeah. <laughs> but I've done. So I had to go. I had to go to some kind of. Uh, it was wasn't exactly counseling, organizational oh, communications improvement or something for. Oh, I don't know what it seemed like months of these appointments right. where I had to go with this person and sit for, oh, for heaven's sake. So, uh, so I guess the term that we use when, um, when puppies misbehave is the putting their uh, noses. <laughs> yeah. They, ru- they rubbed your nose in it. Huh? Rubbed, so, so I did that. Mm. And so it wasn't, it was, I mean, I think I would have learned a lesson if I had just ended up on the sidewalk thinking, Hmm. Whoops. Yeah. But instead I had, I don't know what, several months, but it finally by, by engaging, by showing up for those, um, appointments, I was able to convincingly say it, it may not be me who's the problem here. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but what but it, it ended up being a much longer road. Oh, mercy. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure how much time I could have shaved off that, but I could have shaved a lot off that. So, so that was certainly an incentive to come up with some better strategies for dealing with certainly dilemmas and certainly, and maybe to become even more exhilarated about occasions where I'm not a contestant, but mm. where I actually am able to, uh, be empowered to preside over an arena of intense conflict and not to decide, shall I walk out? Shall I shout? Shall I hold my ground? But to think, what shall I do to keep this thing from continuing downhill? Yeah, and what is what is our goal here? And how do we keep everyone's eyes on the prize? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we how do we set some boundaries? How do we right mm-hmm. the ship? 
that is a fascinating role and it one is. certainly not everyone's suited for. I mean, some people, uh, where did I hear this? This is from some movie. Uh, I want to say it's Primal Fear with Richard Gere. He was on the road to becoming a judge and he goes, why would you want to be a referee when you can play ball? And there are people who view the world that way. Right. Um, there are people who are career campaign folks. Right. And I would argue, it, and that doesn't just pertain to candidates. That pertains to issues. Right. There are people who are running a 24-7 political campaign. Mm-hmm. And it's true. philosophically, I, I think in a lot of ways we're worse for it. But that's my personal position. The thing about it is those folks exist. How do the rest of us sort of navigate right. that and manage uh, the, the different energies that are often at odds with each other and how do we maintain our society mm-hmm. while that's going on? And that sounds to me almost exactly what you're describing. I, I'm sure many other professions could contribute and must contribute to this. Oh, certainly. The historian thing is really good and and under-noticed as really effective stance mm. because, first of all, there's only two alls. So okay, first perfect. First all and second of all. <laughs> the first one. First of all and last of all. Well, last of all. <laughs> right? It's quite a long A to Z journey we're taking here. I'll skip the other parts of the alphabet. So first of all, the historian training program is, oh, I'm sure it could be easily seen as tedious because partly it is. But you're to read, say that you were going to start as, good heavens, we always had to start with the Puritans. Okay. Right. Puritans. Here we go. The Puritans. Um, and they were very word oriented and they left quite a trail of words and so then you have to um, read the Puritans and their sermons and their documents of compacts of how they will live together and how they will organize their churches and their covenants and so on and you're some people love that I it wasn't me thinking oh man this is exactly what I wanted and their minds were quite the really important thing about people of the past their minds were different it's not that just that they're dressed up in funny clothes their minds were different so right. so uh, the first time through the Puritan documents, you're just, oh no, I've made some bad choices of right. how I spend my time. But then you think, well, that's actually not an option because you're supposed to understand them. The assignment here was you're supposed to understand them. So you go back in and you're tougher on yourself and you just sure. say, just because this doesn't make sense the first time, that doesn't mean you get to leave. You have to right. stay there. And then finally, uh, the next round through, you can be thinking, oh, saved by grace. Oh, Okay, that is so much about the power of the deity that it doesn't matter whether you're actually, you're not to be measured by your acts. It's really Mm. whether grace has been given to you. And so, and you don't say, and now I shall believe that the rest of my life. You just say, I think I can begin to see what it would be like to live inside that idea. Yeah. And that would change just about everything. So if you're doing it in the right history form, you get that, and then you think, uh-oh, the Puritans are not all alike. Uh-oh. So <laughs> they have factions. Oh, no. Now I have to go there, and now I have to go. Why did these people go to Rhode Island and leave Massachusetts Bay Colony? It certainly would have been easier on me if they had not gone to Rhode Island and if they had just stayed there and been right. like-minded people. But no, they're not doing that. As if the people in Massachusetts, I mean, the witch trial, that's real harmony in Salem. So, yeah. so you have to just keep moving your point of view around. And then when you say, okay, now I think I have it with the Puritans and the British colonists. Well, then we have the Pequots, then we have the Passamaquoddy, then we have all kinds of um, mm. quite distinct tribes that we must deal with. And then the, the Dutch are in New York and they're coming in. So it's, oh, stop. It's endless, but, right? Right. It is endless. Uh, well, it isn't. Technically endless, well, but, no, but, but given our time span on the planet, it's, sure. it's pretty, uh, and so uh, 
uh, what you may or may not notice as a young person is that your mind is getting better. Right. And whatever you will ever do with your knowledge of the Puritans, which I do a tiny bit in ways that are a little bit amusing in the oil and gas world, actually. But uh, <laughs> in fact, I just will throw this in that I do this in various audiences and I should probably just put it out in the world because it should never be said behind people's backs. Um, so there are plenty of people who are very ardent about environmental causes and they are recreationists and that's all good. Mm -hmm. And in order to ski, in order to go mountain biking and so on, they have often have motor vehicles that are quite sizable to mm. carry the equipment. All the, the gear. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have said that that's where my studies of the Puritans back in graduate school have been really useful because you might otherwise be befuddled if you were in a community like Boulder and you saw people driving SUVs with mountain bikes and ski equipment and so on loaded in, you might think, well, now that's a contradiction right? because they have, um, they attend rallies in opposition to oil and gas development and then they have these large vehicles. Right. And those are, um, Few are Teslas, but even those are right. powered and, by coal. And those, so, <laughs> so there's some, oftentimes by coal. So it's a, right. it's a problem, and it's befuddling until you think back to your encounters with the Puritans, and you think, oh yeah, saved by grace and not by acts and actions. Ah. So if you were driving an SUV in the proper spirit of love of nature and reverence for nature and immersion in the value of nature that you're going to have when you get to your destination, yeah. that is driving in a state of grace. Ah. And the chemical engineers lag in this, but that changes the emissions. Hmm. If you're driving in a state of grace, there's a possibility that the CO2 and benzene and so on, that that's but altered it... by the fact that the driver is in the fashion of the Puritans ah. in a state of grace and saved by grace and not by... By action. So I have said that in various locales, and now I'm saying it where anybody who wants to hear it can hear it. And it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> right. It's supposed to be funny, but for some people who it's are... It's a fascinating concept. It is. Uh, and it does explain a fair number of things about contradictions, what seem like contradictions, but are actually paradoxes. Mm -hmm. So they come from the same... The belief system and the actions come from the same roots and they seem when you see them over the surface they look like they're contradictory but if you go down to the root system they're right. kind of tied together uh, well i mean even the bible which you know there's there's a certain subset that says the bible is the end all be all it is the alpha and the omega in terms of the way in which we're supposed mm -hmm. to live our lives the bible is full of contradictions the bible is full of paradoxes right. it's full of dilemmas it's full right. of seeming a, a word you did not mention but right. i will is hypocrisy right. and you go how do you square these in your head? Right. And basically, if you can start to unpack that question, you'll, you'll never unpack it mm -hmm. fully. But you get to the root of people's humanity. Right. And right. the more that you can do that and the more that you can understand people, the better we start to mm -hmm. connect with one another. Um, if, if you were driving your giant, you know, uh, emissions belching SUV, but you're doing it for this purpose, I don't know where I'm going with this, but... But you start to get a look at someone's imperfections. Right. You get a look at their humanity. And if you can understand it through that lens mm -hmm. and not immediately go to ad hominem type attacks, mm -hmm. I think we're better off for it. Right. Well, and that's the whole uh, pitch with the historian thing is that you go through a training program where you never get to just let your point of view right. rest. And what I just offered there in terms of the uh, applying Puritan <laughs> sure. history to um, – 
that was that was a little bit too mocking. That's an edge too mocking, and that really that won't that wouldn't work as an historian if you right. pay close attention to the Puritans and their factions, and and then you take a mocking stance towards the Pequots. Mm. They should take your degree back at that point because that's not. I gotcha. uh, and I just sadly I hope they don't take my degree back. It's a little <laughs> water under the bridge. It seems down. unlikely. <laughs> it seems, but I would say ordinarily. That's well, and what, take it take it with the spirit uh, in which it is intended. Right. Right. So the the power of the historian as moderator is just that, that you have a mind that is trained to move around and not to say, those are the guys I really like. Right. And there are historians who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and which is good if they could admit that, if they haven't sure. particularly noticed that. I mean, to go to the Bible, it just seems intense and unavoidable to reckon with those elements of... Not simple harmony, but who wants a, what good is simple harmony going to be? Christ on the cross says, lift this cup from my lips. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't say honored as I am to suffer on, it's really, if you're suffering a divine figure, you would still have a reason to say, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so, well, so, it, so that's, and that's better to acknowledge that. So I think I was going to have two main points. I can only remember the one, which is that the historian training really does set you up as a moderator. And I guess uh, I'm, now that I said that I had a second point, I'm going to have to create one. And the second point is that you are never permitted to see the world in simple terms. Yeah. And you are never permitted to make moral evaluations of a simple nature. Mm-hmm. So if you take, for instance, the water infrastructure of the American West, the people who built the dams and reservoirs were amazingly active in doing that. So Cheeseman Dam that supplies much of Denver. Um, The people who built that, well, the people who built that were workers of an interesting nature. The people who financed it and oversaw it were morally complex people. They are not people you would want children to look up to. You would not want them to say, I'm daddy, I'm going to bribe people when I grow up and I'm going to go to voters and, and mislead them. And so that's not good. But these two, uh, well, Cheeseman and Moffat, the two big guys were yeah. very expedient in their choices and ethically not always on the highest ground and really fast. They built that. Yeah. Very reservoir. effective. Meanwhile, in our time, we spend decades, uh, I moved here in 33 years ago. There were conversations about a light rail from Denver to Boulder. Mm-hmm. Well, 33 years have passed, and I'm not able to ride Still that. Still not here. Uh, and so, to look at the people of the past and to see their to see them honestly and their complexity, but also to say they were able to move in a fashion that we seem to have gotten inert and right. defeated. And so, to say. Oh dear, the bridges built 50 or 60 or 100 years ago, they are aging and their durability is in question. Oh dear. Oh dear. What are we going to do? Well, and, and that even that might be a more active question. Oh, I mean, that's it's, true. it's just like we spend a little bit more time in the, oh dear. <laughs> and then, and then if we start to think, if we say, oh, what are we going to do? Very fast we're trapped in the, and who's going to pay for it? And I don't want to be All the right. one to pay for it. Right even though I might be driving on those bridges and an incredibly challenging conundrum of how to extract the inspiration from the past. Mm. So if you say, well, they built, we're having trouble building a light rail from Boulder to Denver. And, uh, in the 1860s, they built a, a transcontinental railroad and, uh, 
a few years. Yeah, very expediently. Yep. And then they had to repair it because they built it so fast. So, <laughs> so there's, there's, and they had, uh, but now if we, so if I say, so John, my plan is to use the Transcontinental Railroad as a source of inspiration, then I hope you would say to that, I'm a little bit troubled by that. Are we going to, um, put immigrant labor in life threatening situations and, right. uh, have cave ins and explosions and, yeah, I, are, are we going to bribe congressmen? Is that our plan? That we're going to? Uh, could you help me with this plan? Yeah, this is a tough patty. Or yeah, tough, tough problem, patty. It really is that. And uh, at a certain point, it's going to either I have to keep it separate from right. fact in order to stay inspirational, or I have to say it seems as if those would be the only two choices. I have to say, well, this isn't going to work at all, and we can't. We'll just have to have bridges that collapse from problems right. of durability. I and mean, there's there's hundreds of places to stand between defeatism. And witless remarks of an inspirational nature that don't right. connect to reality. And so there's so much territory in between where you can, in fact, say, well, it's not a surprise that bridges pass through time the way humans pass through time and they, they don't hold up so well. They deteriorate. And, and what's great about a bridge in comparison to a person is that you can repair it. I mean, you can repair a person a little bit, but sure. at a certain point, there's a lifespan. Right. Um, and with bridges, you can, if you're take, if you're proactive, you can really extend that, that lifespan. So, uh, but to do that, that's not going to be easy. And why would we ever think it was easy? Because it wasn't easy for the people who built it. So, let's get on it. Yeah. Um, so that I think the historian has, long, here we are. We're at our second point now. Uh, anti-fatalism delivery system. And I think that's well stated. What's remarkable to me is when you were talking about how you have to. When, in in becoming a historian, you have to go back to the to the Puritans, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you're doing a, particularly American history, it reminds me of my discipline, and I remember thinking, mm-hmm. why are we reading Plato again? Mm-hmm. Like we have to read Plato, we have to read Aristotle, mm-hmm. we have to read Quintilian, mm-hmm. we have to like, and you're going, God, why? Mm-hmm. But it's it's the foundation upon which that that you cannot ignore yeah. Yeah. that tends yeah. to come up again and again. It's it's almost like anything else. You have to go back to the beginning to fully appreciate what's going on. I had a conversation on this show with a lobbyist once, and we were talking about Amendment 41, which prohibited lobbyists from giving gifts to legislators. Um, When you combine that with term limits, you have interesting byproducts that Mm -hmm. occur in the legislature. One of which is, uh, with no lobbyist gifts, what used to happen was lobbying firms used to host get-togethers with hosted bars and things like that. And people from across the aisle from each other oh, mercy. used to both attend. Yeah. And they'd get to know each other in a social context. Yeah. They were less likely to sort of impale each other in mm-hmm. the legislature because they had a different level of relationship. Mm-hmm. A lot of that camaraderie has been removed. Now, mm-hmm. we can argue sort of on its face whether Amendment 41 was good or bad. That's... That's an argument worth having. But there are interesting byproducts that add a layer of complexity to the way that we govern now. The the other thing, and this will bring it back, when we talk about term limits, if you put term limits on Congress, men and women, what you do is you remove a lot of institutional knowledge and you hand it over to the lobbyists. Because those folks are going to cycle through whatever clip they are. The lobbyists never leave. And so when you don't have a legislator saying... Hey, you know what? Uh, maybe don't try that bill. We tried that 12 times. It never worked. Uh, and it's not going to work this time. You know, losing that right. and right. what you're losing is essentially history. Right. And so I, I want to come back to something you said at the very beginning of this show. There is a call and, and an increased sort of demand mm. for your services. 
What do you think is contributing to that? Are are you speaking politically or? I I am speaking uh, about many sectors of society where I seem to be welcomed and invited. I am uh, confident that People should pay attention. I don't doubt the proposition. People would be better off if they paid attention to history. I, mean, I wouldn't <laughs> debate that. You'd be doing a disservice to, <laughs> to well, your field of study right, as well. Right, and if, if you didn't sort of believe that inherently. Right. But And there's a possibility I believe it so strongly that I would show up in places whether I was invited or not. <laughs> so that's a risk that society right. faces that I do believe this right. to the point where I want to be heard and I will – I don't remember calling Patty. Yet she, here she is. <laughs> she is so that's a, I don't know. I mean, I, I actually, well, I, I feel very privileged that I had a friend who, speaking of the legislature, uh, this friend who was, who was a, a wonderful fellow, Vine Deloria Jr., the most noted American Indian intellectual of his time. And he came up to me once. He was a wonderful person to be teased by. Nobody better. And he said, uh, so Patty, actually called me Dr. Limerick in a mocking me. So Dr. Limerick, I understand that the legislature finally passed that bill that people have been asking for. I said, oh, I'm not sure. What, which one was that? He said, well, now, and this, I will tell you, it's like 15 or 20 years ago that this mm-hmm. conversation occurred. He said, uh, now, uh, if more than four, well, if four or more people in Colorado want to get together for a meeting or gathering and they don't want Patty Limerick to give a speech to them, there's now a permitting process. So you can actually get an exemption from from that. So I do give a lot of speeches. Um, and they are almost all premised on history will give us our, our bearings, which gets exactly to the point you were making about the laws that had consequences Mm -hmm. that no one saying, let's put some firewall between the souls of legislators and the gifts of Mm -hmm. lobbyists. No one said, that's a great idea because we could further polarize Republicans and Democrats that way. I love that aspect of it. Right. It seems unlikely that anyone had that in mind. So, or that anyone even possibly foresaw that. I think it's it's very unlikely uh, because that is a quality of human beings that historians keep. I, I don't know when you could what you could study if you were going to say. I can't stand as an historian. I have had it with unintended consequences. I don't ever <laughs> want to hear about that again. I just, I only want to study history where people had an intention and they got exactly the result and the consequence that they wanted. I'm only going to do those because I've just too many unforeseen, but it is, I mean, it's too many unintended consequences and unforeseen outcomes. It'd be a very short book. Uh, <laughs> I had yeah. this idea. It achieved that and only that. Right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Hit the target. Just total hit the target and never had another idea again because I, I feared that it wouldn't yeah, let's, work again. Let's go have a Coke and a smile. Right. That's right. <laughs> and that, and really don't ever try anything again because that's not going to ever pay off. Uh, so I feel that that is one of the great places of stalemate in our world that we are, I'm not sure if we're in denial of unintended consequences or we're just mm. paralyzed by them. It's probably more that. So that there's all kinds of laws that were passed uh, in large part from good intentions and in the nature of human enterprise, a little bit uh, significantly and less, depending on the law, produced the outcome to some degree that they were intended to produce. And then they produced a lot of other stuff. And if it were us... Uh, working on a recipe in the kitchen and after much grating and chopping and so on, we had a tiny little 
part that we produced. Right. And we had five bags of compost that we had <laughs> generated in making our tiny tart there. We would say, I don't think that's a recipe I would care to use again. Or I would uh, certainly cut back on this part. I mean, when I really yeah. had that ingredient, it just took so much time and it didn't actually particularly improve the right. little pie I have here. So so you would take your action or your recipe and you would think, well, this is actually a really tasty little pie, but there's just got to be a better way to get there than right. what I have done here. There's so much unintended consequence. Well, we're stuck with a societal arrangement now where if we have a fundamentally well-intentioned good law of environmental regulation passed in the great era of change of the 1970s, and it has unintended consequences. Part of those unintended consequences come not from human, a good share of them come from human complexity. Some of them come like an Endangered Species Act. Okay, we're going to identify endangered species and we're going to protect them. Some of the irritating endangered species continue to evolve. Hmm. And so there's a, a whole problem with the desert pup fish in Nevada that they didn't say, okay, got it. You're going to protect us. So we'll just stay as we are. They were in pretty isolated, heated pools and they continued to evolve. And now it's, there's a, a very legitimate question of, are you the same species that we were planning to protect? Um, right. And which, if there's been variation in a bunch of different populations, which one is the one that we were planning to to protect? So some of it is that, that nature is um, troublingly complex as well, and certainly human beings are. So we can't, because we are uh, in this failure to think clearly about unintended consequences or refusal to think mm. clearly, we just have to stalemate on that. Mm. If somebody says, boy, we should probably modify some aspects of the Endangered Species Act, some people will say, that's a great idea. We want to get rid of it. So let's start by modifying and then we'll get rid of it pretty soon after that. And, yeah. and the person, well, well, <laughs> that's, I'm hold not, on. that's not exactly what we're after here. And with that, then some people who can see some flaws with the Endangered Species Act are going to have to say, no, we'll keep it exactly as it is. We will not touch a hair on its head. Well, it's imperfect, but you're not getting rid of right, it. You're right. Don't get your, you just yeah. get your mitts away from, that's not a phrase I haven't used in a long time. But get your mitts off. <laughs> It's like we're in a 1930s comic I, I, strip. I know. This is really a funny. That's fantastic. <laughs> that is great. I'm a period piece myself here. A <laughs> historic artifact. Of- I, uh, I wanted to ask you about something else and shifting gears slightly. You were also recently uh, appointed Colorado State Historian. Um, is that like an honorary designation or is that uh, – does that involve like a lot of work? Uh, what a uh, stimulating question. The first thing would be uh, – no one at this moment knows what state historians do nationwide. Right. And what a day to be asking me this, because <laughs> today, the first overture occurred today, and, like two hours ago. And we're recording this June 6th. Just yes. On the, June 6th, for the full first disclosure. overture was made to create uh, a network and communicatory framework for state historians. Wow. So, and that may have existed in the past. I don't. You'd think an historian would know that, but I don't. But the first, there's a wonderful, wonderful man in Connecticut, this Connecticut state historian, who does a wonderful job as state historian. And he and a wonderful woman at, at Cornell, uh, Carol Kamen, and this great guy, John Dictel, whose father was in Boulder, uh, who's the head of the um, American Association for State and Local History. They have had started a conversation about why not try that, to bring the state historians into an exchange. And, and the first thing that we would ask is, what do you do? 
and with whom do you do it and, and what administrative structure? So you happen to be asking me this like I, maybe three hours after the inquiry went out. Uh, they're not, some of them are keeping rather low profiles. So it's, there seem to be only, uh, 15 or so states where you can easily find the state historian. Oh, wow. Okay. And some of them may just be, um, quiet people who are sure. sitting in a tiny office and not wanting, and, and history is very controversial. So those may be very wise people that they're sitting in their <laughs> tiny office, not talking very much, but, or, but some of them may have been yearning to find their comrades. Some of them may just are not, uh, be affiliated with a particular state government office right. where you could find them. So, so as of right now, we are just launched on finding out what state historians do oh. in our case. Um, uh, I think there is a wonderful opportunity for actually just a tweaking of structure that would make a huge difference. In our state, the state historian has, uh, the governor has no authority, has no appointing authority, the state legislature has no ties, uh, and it, I think it never happened from any process of deliberation, but the state historical society obviously needs to have an historian. Right now, they don't have anyone with a PhD in history full-time on their staff. Mm. So that is a priority for the State Historical Society. The former state historian worked full-time. That used to be the pattern, was a full-time employee. But it's been several years since that was the case. So structurally, what we need is just a tweaking that the Historical Society hires the official historian of the State Historical Society, History Colorado's official historian. Right. Then... You citizens, there you are, you're one. You deserve a state historian who is not embedded in a state bureaucracy. The State Historical Society is a uh-huh. state bureaucracy. You deserve a state historian who is careful, responsible, deliberate, but also an agent who can speak with the forthrightness that a historian has to, has to have. So I think that we're close to where we could have a conversation about having a state historian who mm. is... And this is probably, I don't know that there's any other state where the one unit like the historical society grabbed ownership and, and appointing power and so on. Right, so, all that, yeah. And it's, and, and there's every reason for the state historical society to have a, a figure. But to have a person who works full time there who can navigate around the bureaucracy there, that's, that's a whole other job. Yeah. And to be the public, uh, presence the cheerleader, dare I say that? My big sisters were cheerleaders and I was not. So hmm. give me an H for <laughs> So, so I like that role very much and I think I'm well suited to that. And so I, I believe that the communication with the other state historians will lead us to a, a good framework for saying maybe to some, I, I think we, this is a wild idea. I think we could have a bipartisan coalition with the Colorado State Legislature to say this is a position that really belongs to the citizens. And not to the injury of History Colorado, because right. they would then have a better framework of somebody full-time with them. So sure. so what I have done is uh, cheerleader. Uh, I write uh, Denver Post columns that are officially by the state historian. I appear as a talking head in Rocky Mountain Public Television's um, Colorado experience. I go to uh, Rotary Clubs. I go to uh, sure. places, and, and people are very nice about saying the state historian is here. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a state historian. No robes, no yeah. hats or anything. But I I feel that in ways I hadn't expected, I am more uh, encouraging to people, people who invited me to a group that may or may not love history. I've given them uh, more power with their comrades to say, this matters. Mm-hmm. And we'll stick with it. She'll be here for one talk, but we're going to stick with this. I feel that I can go, 
Oh man, there's okay. So here's something else I get to do. There's quite a long list of things that I get to do. Okay, so Front Range, Western Slope, not always so good in terms of no, not human always. relations. I'm trying to think, yeah, sometimes good. And one place that is good and can be good, uh, Colorado Mountain College has a bunch of campuses on the Western Slope. Mm-hmm. A man named De- David Delaplane was the guy who really uh, he was work he was in Glenwood working there years ago. 50 years ago, and thought we should have more educational opportunities for the young folks on the Western Slope. So David Delaplane, who now lives in Denver, uh, who's elderly and, and livelier than either of us, as it turns wow. out, uh, he, he got that going. Bond issues in, in Western Slope counties, and so it's the 50th anniversary. There's a new book with a history of the Colorado Mountain College system. Uh, there's a president who is spectacular. Hmm. Uh, Carrie Bissett Hauser, I may have reversed her names there for well, middle names. Anyway, so I get the state historian will, is writing the foreword. Oh, cool. Book. Yeah. And that is so what the state historian should be doing. And the state historian should be making sure, I guess we have some limited powers as state historians, but traveling around with that book. Yeah. And saying, this is the place, uh, to, if you have thought, why are people on the Western slopes seeming so distant from us or not engaged with us? Look at this book and see what happens on the Western slope and see the kind of enterprise that, I mean, all the, uh, the negotiations to get land for the colleges and sometimes ranchers donating sure. land out of nobility. And so it's a wonderful story. And I bet we could walk up and down the 16th street mall for uh, several months right. every day before we'd find an informed person who knew the story and who knew how much the whole state has benefited from that. So, Absolutely. so the state story, and then just to use one trivial example, but it's really cute. So I was walking along uh, on campus and there was a bus full of school children who were on a tour and that was parked by the side of the road. And I came by and a teacher goes, Oh, look, there's the state historian. So then the bus driver opens the door and this teacher say, would you come in and talk to the, to the students? So the state historian, <laughs> that would be me. Then, <laughs> <laughs> just walking along the sidewalk, but I then go up the steps and I speak to the children about the importance and value of history and how great it would be to have them come to see you and study history and and the uh, importance they could make bringing out the better angels and um, yeah. helping us. So, and then I get off the bus and the school children go, "Well, that was odd." <laughs> so I know what they I have no idea. Maybe one or two, maybe one or two of those kids thinks, you know, I might take her up on that. Well, and you know, as as a former public speaking instructor, the impromptu speech in the wild. Is pe- people go, people go impromptu speech. Like, when am I ever going to have to make an impromptu oh, speech? Yeah. Oh, you'll be very surprised. Yeah. It happens yeah. way more often than you think, yeah. especially if you work, uh, in a company of any size. Someone will call on you and say, Hey, give us a download of this project. Right. And if you don't have, if you don't know how to structure yes. a handful of points, yes, that's exactly right. um, almost, you know, off the tip of your tongue, that that will be very career limiting. Well, and it will look like the project is floundering, which it may or exactly. may not be. The f- project might be thriving, but if you say, "Oh, I hadn't really thought this through," but um, well, let me start at the end because <laughs> well, so and that right. might be where you were thinking, and so you'd start there, right. and then other people are, where are you now, and where did it begin, and so I mean, it's just it's yeah. a very interesting, so, it's a wonderful skill to be. Where did this to... project begin? All right, well, okay, let me go back to the Puritans. Real yeah, quick. that's right, that's right. And actually, I think we would really have to go back. I mean, it's going to have to be in uh, the Middle East by the point. Where well, almost know. certainly, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, okay, we need to wrap up, um, Patty. This is the time in the show when uh, I like to do plugs. 
So uh, anything you want to plug, where can people find you? Where can they find more about the Center for the American West? Uh, plug anything you want. It's all yours. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, I really just write patricia.limerick, L-I-M-E-R-I-C-K. You don't have to write a limerick when you write me, but that's fine too. Patricia.limerick at uh, Center West, one word, centerwest.org, or call 303-492-4879. That's the main office number, and you can reach us easily through that. Or You're go- like the second person in a row who's done a phone number. <laughs> I almost never get that anymore. It's know, it's fantastic. But there are older people who think in those terms, <laughs> and I might be one of those. I guess. I mean, I would I would certainly go to a website myself. But no. But what's but a, I mean, this thing lives on the web, and so anytime I get a phone number, I'm like that thing in your pocket. You know, it can still make calls. Yeah, it can make calls, right? That's Shockingly, right. and a person a person will probably answer, and that's a they, thing they too. may answer. Yeah. So www.centerwest.org would be another way to go. Uh, we have. Really excellent projects and programs coming up. We're trying to take an old thing that was, uh, we did years ago that's pretty lively called the Urban Rural Divorce, where I play Urbana Asphalt West and a friend plays Sandy Green Hills West and all the urban rural tensions. We did that probably 40 different places around the West. Uh, it's been in mothballs for 10 or 12 years. The last election was very much about urban rural tensions, so we're going to get that back out and we would love coaching and advice on how to make sure we are getting that set for, for 2017 and 2018. Uh, we have excellent speakers. We have the former chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities coming in September, and he is also a Vietnam veteran. We have a project going on the commemoration of the Vietnam uh, War 50th anniversary. He'll be here for part of that. It's very intense and very moving, and Vietnam veterans especially. I hope that you will wow. uh, get in touch with us on, on that. We have the noted American Indian writer, Sherman Alexie, who everybody has to read in high school, so... Young people know about about him, and adults also enjoy that very much. Certainly. He'll be here in the in the fall, and uh, an expert historian uh, from Georgetown who is the the expert on the meaning of populism, which we hear quoted over and over in this populist moment. This populist moment. Well, this fellow wrote the book called uh, the, the Populist uh, Manifesto. I think that's right. I hope I got that right. How embarrassing if I didn't. That's not right. Well, it's something like that. It's not the Populist Manifesto. Oh, for heaven's sake. Well, anyway, it's a, it's a very fine book. Uh, his name is Michael Kazin, K-A-Z-I-N. And this will be very humiliating when he sees me floundering on <laughs> the title of his book. The Populist Tradition? The Populist. Well, anyway, he'll, he'll be here and, and he and I are going to do a conversation about what we should do when we hear current political figures referred to as populists. Interesting. What's, what does that add up to? And how does it connect to what happened, for instance, in Colorado in the 1890s? Which is pretty different from anything we see right now. 100%. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, this was uh, an enormously entertaining chat for me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I had a wonderful time. And, and uh, we have to stop. Boo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I could do this for a month of Sundays with you. But uh, thank you very much, Dr. Limerick. Patty. Please, Patty. Patty. Yeah. I mean, I always say, I, it just seemed to me... I had to throw it in there once. I mean, I, mean, I know, but it seemed... I got it. When I went to Yale, I was talking to a professor there and I got bogged down. He said, what other classes are you taking? And I said, well, I'm, to ta- I'm taking professor or perhaps I should say Mr. And I didn't know what the terms were. Doctor, I probably should say doctor. And he said to me rather condescendingly, he said, Patty, here it is assumed that every professor carries the PhD. So we do not refer to that. We could say Mr. So-and-so and should you get to know them personally, you could use the first name and hmm. so on. So I, I got from that. I don't know what I'm supposed to get, but I got Oh, they're so good that they don't need to brag. Ah. And if you are insecure and anxious about your credentials, then you'll insist <laughs> that people keep referring to you as doctor or professor. But if you are confident 
Yeah. We won't be doing that. I don't know if that's what he meant to say, but I would feel pathetic if I said, oh, please, I insist that you call me Patricia. I didn't spend all these years in school right. for her to, to call, call me Miss. Patty, but, but if Patty. You, I, I would prefer Patty. Fair enough. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, you're an absolute ray of sunshine, and I wish you nothing but continued success. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you for appearing and, and being such a good soul and inspiration yourself. Ah, shucks. <laughs> And that wraps up episode 137 of the John of All Trades podcast featuring Dr. Patty Limerick from CU Boulder and the Center for the American West. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking some time out of your day and providing new insight into issues that touch us all. As Westerners, we have a shared history, and it behooves us all to come together and listen to each other. That's exactly what Patty is trying to do. You can find out more about Patty. We've got it linked on the John of All Trades website. Go to jonofalltrades.us. We're also on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, all under the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. New episode previews go up on Monday, so you'll get the drop on each week's new episode before anyone else. Make sure to check out Facebook for that. New episodes drop on Wednesday. We are on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. And I'm back here next week with a brand new episode. We're going to keep on rolling. Got to catch up. That time off, no good. You got to make sure you're putting out a consistent product, and we're doing just that. I've already got it done. You're going to love it. Coming next week. I've also got two weeks from now coming up. That's a big episode. My July 4th Spectacular. That one's a big one and one I've been trying to get for a long time. So, a lot going on on the John of All Trades podcast. Stay up to date with us. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.